With the national spotlight on the Arbery case and Georgia's criminal justice system, how is justice being served on Zoom? Watching it on TV where you've got a human being sitting in a two inch by two inch block on your computer screen, it's not like seeing it in the real world. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today on Second Thought, Georgia Senior Superior Court Judge Brian Culpepper on upholding the right to a fair and speedy trial during a pandemic. Plus, Betty Kearse grew up being told she was descended from an American president and African slaves. She shares what she found over decades piecing together the history of the other Madisons. And Little Richard's groundbreaking, daring, and often scandalous career in rock and roll. To me, he, he was the real king of rock and roll. Elvis even copied Richard. Music legend Alan Walden remembers his friend, colleague, and a true original from Macon to the stratosphere. All coming up, first the news. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. While segments of Georgia's economy have reopened, last week, Georgia Supreme Court Chief Justice Harold Melton extended the judicial emergency for the state's courts until June 12th. Some procedures have been held on Zoom, but criminal and jury trials and the summoning or impaneling of new grand juries have been suspended since shelter-in-place orders began in mid-March. Well, that hold might have gone unnoticed outside the system if cell phone video showing the last few minutes of Ahmad Arbery's life had not surfaced. The graphic video appeared to show a very different account than that of Travis and Gregory McMichael, who pursued and shot Arbery after a struggle in the street. The resulting national outrage led to both men being arrested and charged with murder and aggravated assault. But with the ban on new grand juries, they remain in jail unindicted. Lauren Zimmerman is an Atlanta-based lawyer with his own private practice and is president of the Georgia Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. While he's not involved in the case, he's here to offer some perspective. Lawrence, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you, Virginia. There are so many issues in this case, including questions about how the initial investigation was handled by the Brunswick District Attorney's Office and the Glynn County Police Department. But I'm interested in the judicial process. What can and cannot proceed in this case so long as this emergency is in place? Well, the most important thing right now, for example, in this case, I can't proceed is grand jury presentments or jury trials. They've pretty much been suspended at least trials indefinitely by Chief Justice Melton. Um, grand jury may restart come June, Monday, June 15th. Um, it's not clear. I think they're still trying to figure out how to do that. A grand jury is 16 to 23 people of a county. They sit for six-month terms. And so I think they're trying to decide how can we safely have people gather in a room for hours at a time to hear cases. And it's conceivable that the judicial emergency could actually be extended beyond that time, correct? Correct. Yeah, we have a very strong and smart judicial leadership in Chief Justice Mellon and the Supreme Court. They are being very cautious and they don't want to bring anybody into court to make it sick. You know, we already had one juror um, in Albany who was sick that it's my understanding that that's why that judge passed away. She caught it from the juror. 
My goodness. Well, the effects of this are so far reaching. But right now we're looking at uh, the case. The McDaniel said Arbery looked like a man suspected in several break ins in the area. There has been a fact check by the Brunswick News. They found through public records requests that just one burglary was reported in the neighborhood since January. So that's just a little background. But then Waycross prosecutor George Barnhill argued that they had acted legally under George's citizen's arrest and self-defense laws. A little background, please, on citizen's arrest, what that law allows and does not allow. Well, the best way to think about citizen's arrest, and they're very unusual, is if you are in Kmart and you shoplift, what is the person who is doing store security allowed to do? Can they detain you, grab you, and hold you down until the police get there? Not necessarily. I mean, if you're stealing a pack of baseball cards, then store security could try to hold you there, but you don't have to, you don't have to stick around and wait for them. You could, you could leave. You could, you could take off and go. If you're committing a felony in Kmart and you run out, now they may have the ability under Georgia law to chase after you because you're trying to escape the detention. And then you get, it gets a little tricky, especially when in, in the Arbery case, because we don't know if there's a felony. We haven't heard what the McMichaels reasonably believed was happening. I'm not so sure there was a, even a criminal trespass because just going into a, a house that's open under construction is not necessarily a crime. You have to have, remember in criminal law, you have to have two things. You have to have what's called the mens re, which is mm-hmm. the mental intent, and the actus reus, which is the act. So without the mental intent to show what he was doing, there may not be a crime at all. And a burglar is the intent to commit a theft or a felony inside that construction site. And I haven't seen anything yet. And again, I'm not in the case and we don't know what's out there, but from what we've heard, I haven't seen anything that indicated there's even a burglary. Right. Or that they witnessed a burglary firsthand. Is that one of the requirements for citizen's arrest that you have to have seen the crime? It would have to be the immediate presence or knowledge of that person. And if it's a felony and try to escape, then you could re- use reasonable, some kind of reasonable force to detain them. Well, I guess that's the question. What is reasonable force? It's not deadly force. That's for sure. And, that, and I think that's where it gets into the woods here because you got these guys chasing him down and he thinks they're attacking him for who knows what. And he tries to defend himself and they shoot him. But, you know, sure. there are some that call this the citizen's arrest law. It's been around since the Civil War, 1863, as a a kind of relic of the Wild West and calls to repeal it. What are some of the arguments against the citizen's arrest law, as you understand it? Well, you have, I mean, listen, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious you're having, and by all accounts, McMichaels at least had at some point was, uh, was law enforcement, but you're having people who are not trained law enforcement taking the law into their own hands, don't even know really what the law is, and trying to make an arrest. But you're down on the side of the road and you have two guys pull up in a pickup truck. How do you know they are really legitimate and are there to do something lawful? You may think they're just here to rob you, to beat you because you're African-American. We don't know. So of course you're going to be terrified and either fight or flight. So I think that's the fundamental problem with citizens' arrest. How do you know they are who they say they are? And then it turns into a violent encounter because you're going to try to escape. You don't have the right to detain somebody and use force like that. It has to be reasonable. You can't just shoot them because you think they're going to attack you. It gets real convoluted to stand your ground. 
Well, this is going to be an interesting case to watch unfold. Uh, Lawrence Zimmerman, I want to thank you for your time. Thank you. Atlanta-based lawyer Lawrence Zimmerman on the case of the shooting of Ahmad Aubrey and where it stands right now. You can keep track of latest updates on this story and more at gpbnews.org. Even before outraged lawmakers, celebrities, and activists across the nation, and internationally, I should add, began calling for charges in the shooting of Ahmaud Arbery, Georgia's senior Superior Court Judge Bryant Culpepper was worried about the implications of halting criminal and jury trials, both for an already backlogged judicial system and for the constitutional right to a speedy trial. Judge Culpepper joins us now from Perry, Georgia, to talk about his worries and experiences of trials by Zoom during shelter-in-place orders. Thank you so much for taking the time and welcome. Thank you very much. Well, so there is some precedent for this. You have done some procedures by video camera or now Zoom link up, and it's been bumpy in some places. I read about a judge in Florida reprimanding lawyers for wearing casual clothes rather than suits. But how about that feeling in the courtroom for you as a judge? How has that changed your ability to do your work and to really read what is going on? Zoom is a poor substitute for the real thing. We do it out of necessity in those rare cases where we can do it, but it's a poor substitute for a real court hearing. A judge's responsibility to sit on the bench and to use his ears and eyes and his heart, I suppose, to assess what's going on, assess the believability of witnesses, to try to understand the arguments made by counsel. Watching it on TV where you've got a human being sitting in a two-inch by two-inch block on your computer screen, it's not like seeing it in the real world. That's the beauty of being on a trial bench. You get to see people. You see the, the emotions of people. You see the effect that crime has on, on a victim. You see the mother's tears. You hear the preacher come in and tell you he's a good boy. He's, he's you know. Those are part of our system. And right now, none of that can, can go forward. We can't get our day in court. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the system of justice here, because the old legal maxim, justice delayed is justice denied. And this is one of your concerns, as I understand it, as well as for some other in the legal community, possible violations of the Sixth Amendment right to a speedy trial. So you're worried that justice is not being served for these defendants? I'm, well, I'm, I'd say worry. I, I'm, in effect, saddened by it because we have people that are sitting in jails that uh, have been previously waiting on a trial, and now we can't give them one. And, well, if it's your son or daughter that's sitting there, or your brother or sister or your child is sitting in a jail someplace, and they, they thought, well, maybe I can go to trial in March. Now they tell me I can't go to trial until June. And now, then when I get to June, they say, well, it'll be August or September. That's uh, That's got to be a frustrating thing for people to have to go through. Yeah. And the system is just on hold at this point. Everything is just stopped. It's, it's like somebody called time out and we're just waiting for the game to start back again. And it's going to be a while till this virus goes away to make the facilities where we try these cases uh, safe enough to, to proceed. 
And we don't know when that's going to be. Do you anticipate that there may be lawsuits because people's Sixth Amendment rights are denied? Well, I'm sure there will be somewhere some at some time. Uh, I don't know what the alternative is. Though. Uh, speedy trial generally means that you'll be tried at the next available time. If you ask for that or demand that, you'll be given first slot the next time court is tried. It then means that you've got to do it within a certain period of time. It means as soon as that's available to you or to the court, then the court has to address that particular case. And right now it can't be done. It may be that uh, this is as fast as we can go. This is, this is the speed that we're at, and then this is what this is all we can do. I'm speaking with Judge Bryant Culpepper, Senior Superior Court Judge of Georgia, and we're talking about the effect COVID-19 has had on court proceedings around the state, something that he has been a part of, witness to, and something that he's concerned about, especially the right of a fair and speedy trial, a constitutional right. What does your backlog look like right now, and how long might it take to recover? It will take, uh, I would think, 18 months to two years to get things back to normal again. Uh, I'm actually a senior judge, and I, but I'm filling in right now for Judge Berta Colvin, who was named to the Court of Appeals recently. And there are numbers of cases. I, I couldn't give you the number of them right now, but they're hundreds of cases on our criminal calendar that she has, as well as her civil case load. And so those are just there. Uh, the defendants are either out on bond or they're in jail. And that's the way it'll stay until we can convene uh, a trial court or a trial session to uh, begin to deal with. So the other concerns I've heard from legal advocates and sometimes court watchers are that People aren't watching these trials. The public is not there, obviously, for safety reasons, but that things can go on inside of courts on Zoom that relatively few people can see. Does that concern you at all? Well, it does concern me because you want to make sure that you're not uh, perceived to be operating in a star chamber type situation where you're doing it out of the view of the public. Uh, we have requirements in um criminal cases that the court be open to the public. That's very important. Now, there, there are mechanisms that allow for the public to watch Zoom proceedings. And if the judges can understand how technically to do that so that the public can call in or look in on, on things, then that, we feel like that requirement can be accomplished that way. Uh, there have been some problems with Zoom with people that have no business being involved in, right. in the case, mm -hmm. put things on Zoom that are inappropriate and uh, interjects themselves into the hearing when they have no right to participate. Right. Zoom so, bombing, I guess it's called, or Zoom yeah, rating. Right. You have to watch that. Well, let's get to the case that has uh, gained a lot of national and international attention in the state's court system. Justice Melton's extension effectively bans new grand juries from being summoned or impaneled. So in this case about the killing of Ahmad Arbery, because it's getting so much attention, can you imagine an emergency grand jury maybe even being called? No, there's no room for an emergency grand jury. They're, they're going to have to follow the rules that Judge Melton has put down about the sitting of a grand jury, and uh, they're going to have to wait till that occurs. 
Well, let me ask you, he extended the judicial emergency on Monday of last week, the day before this video came out. Uh, Do you think he's asking himself questions about that at this moment? I doubt it. I don't know that this uh, this is a bad case. This is something of great public interest, but it's a case. And that case is important to a lot of people. There are a lot of cases that are important to a lot of people around the state. And this one's not going to be handled any differently than anybody else's case. They'll follow the same rules, the same processes, despite the public clamor. But there's no need to skirt around the rules to try to push things along or or be in a hurry. It will happen when it can happen. And I'm sure that uh, the participants involved, the district attorney, the judge, the defense counsel will all be uh, tuned in to what those requirements are. And I'm sure they'll want to proceed as quickly as they can. Right. Just following up on that, Attorney General Chris Carr did name a new district attorney in this case. Uh, Cobb County DA Joyette Holmes is going to be the prosecutor for the Arbery case. But before we close, the courts have had to adopt and adapt to new technologies in the past. Now doing some hearings and procedures on Zoom. What kind of long-term changes do you think this will have, if any, for the courts? Oh, I'm, I'm not a very good predictor of the future. I remember <laughs> when uh, somebody suggested we uh, install a fax machine in our office, and I fought against it. I thought that was ridiculous. <laughs> and, uh, and then somebody suggested we ha- actually have computers in, in, the, in the judge's office. I thought that was a waste of money and time. So I'm not, I'm, you have to drag me into this stuff. I'm, I'm not interested particularly, well, I'll have any clairvoyance about what will happen. I'm glad, though, however, we have had this technology available. If this had happened 10 years ago, we would really be stuck. And uh, everything would have come to a halt. We are letting some things through and some things can be done. But the old uh, traditional way of trying cases, uh, getting indictments, presenting them to the grand jury, all those ways are still there. And they they cannot be accommodated electronically. They have to be done on paper, with with people uh, following the law, following tradition. A lot of this stuff goes all the way back to the common law. A lot of what we do is things that have been around in the, uh, basically in the English-speaking world for centuries upon centuries. And we are just the latest beneficiaries of our system. It will change. People change. Courts will have to change. And uh, where that goes at this point uh, is anybody's guess. Well, Judge Culpepper, I want to thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. Brian Culpepper, Senior Superior Court Judge of Georgia. And special thanks to our intern, Chase McGee, for his help with this segment. Coming up, a Georgia giant exits the stage. Alan Walden remembers his friend, Little Richard. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for that conversation and more on Second Thought. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Tributes have poured in from around the world since the death of little Richard last Saturday at age 87. His influence crossed decades and borders, but he was beloved as one of George's own and remained proudly, as he sang it, a Southern child. I'm a Southern child, Southern child from down in Macon, Georgia. Mick Jagger studied his moves. Bob Dylan said he was the guiding light of his boyhood. Paul McCartney said he learned everything he knows from Little Richard. 
Not known for understatement, the man born Richard Wayne Penniman, the third of 12 children in 1932, staked his own claim for GPB's documentary, The Makin' Sound. You know, I wanted the people out here in television land to know that I am the originator, I am the innovator, I am the architect of rock and roll, I am the beginning of it. Before me, it wasn't any. Scholars and fans of Chuck Berry, Bo Diddley, or other rhythm and blues acts at the dawn of rock and roll might argue with that title. But little Richard did burst onto the scene like a meteor wearing a pompadour and thin mustache. He carried the fire and brimstone growls of the Holiness Church, a stomping boogie-woogie piano style, and a whiff of the transgressive carnality of the drag circuit. Like most of the rhythm and blues writers, early rock and roll writers of the 50s, they're going to be using a lot of code within the lyrics. And in fact, Tutti Frutti is a great example because Tutti Frutti, Good Booty was the original first line or something. I read that somewhere. Dr. Stephen Valdez is associate professor at UGA's Hugh Hodgson School of Music. Among the courses he teaches, history and analysis of rock and roll. That was part of the thrill of this early rock and roll. It's kind of like these uh, performers kind of snuck one under the, the radar there. And that was like catnip to American teens. A lot of white teenage kids loved to go to, to Richard's shows because he was so exciting. And anathema to groups like the White Citizens Council of North Alabama, who picketed rock and roll shows, denounced it as jungle music, and said it degraded the morality of white youth and promoted race mixing. Little Richard was a very, very real threat. Well, as, as was Elvis Presley and Buddy Holly and the rest of them, especially in the South. Richard broke other barriers, too, decades before David Bowie, Alice Cooper, or the glam scene of the 1970s put heavy eyeliner and gender fluidity on stage. He had a lot going against him. I mean, this is leave it to beaver time, you know? And here is little Richard, a poor African-American from Macon, Georgia. I, I don't think... Little Richard's sexual preferences are going to be, you know, advertised back then. Uh, so he, I'm sure, had a harder time trying to keep it hidden than to try to make something of himself as being this gay performer. Throughout his career, Richard tried to distance himself from the swishy theatrics of his early years and disavowed homosexuality and the devil's music. In 1958, terrifying turbulence on a flight to Australia led to a mid-air conversion. And the, the story goes that uh, Richard got down on his knees and started praying that, oh God, if you get us out of this, I promise I will stop doing this nasty rock and roll and I will turn to the church, I will become a preacher and all this, but please get us out of there. The plane landed safely, and true to his word, Richard entered seminary and became a Seventh-day Adventist preacher with his own church. After making a couple of gospel records, he was itching to get back to rock and roll, and in 1963 toured Europe with a young band called the Rolling Stones as his opening act, and an unknown guitarist named Jimi Hendrix in his band. And here's the song that started it all, Little Richard's first hit, 
Tutti Frutti from 1955. For a more personal reflection of Little Richard, we turn to another Macon music legend, Alan Walden, who was a lifelong friend. He and his brother Phil helped launch and manage the careers of Otis Redding, Percy Sledge, Sam and Dave, Al Green, and many others. Phil was co-founder of Capricorn Records, the label that recorded the Allman Brothers, Leonard Skinner, and others. First, I'm so sorry for the loss of your friend and really appreciate you taking the time to talk about him today. Oh, gosh. I'll tell you, uh, Richard was an unbelievable human being. I mean, he he was uh, such a friend to the Walden family. And uh, the other night after I read about his death, I probably listened to four hours of it. <laughs> he was the one who influenced us the most to go into music. We actually have a clip from your brother, Phil. This is from the GPB documentary, The Macon Sound. When I first heard uh, uh, Little Richard say, Pomp Bombaloo, Mama Lamb Bamboo, I knew I did not want to sell insurance. I didn't want to be a doctor, a lawyer, Indian chief. I want to be in rock and roll. <laughs> well, this, that's about the way it went. I mean, Phil would be telling our mother, dad, he was going to a, a one of the school meetings downtown uh, at the Y. And our city all terms right across the street. And so they dropped him out. And instead of going to the Y, he went to the city all terms to see rock and roll show. <laughs> and then he took then he took me later on. See, first, first rock and roll show I went to see was Hank Ballard and the Midnight Husband. And it was the wildest thing I'd ever seen in my life, you know. But, you know, Little Richard, uh, I knew all of his songs. I mean, I knew all that came out. I, I bought every Little Richard record there was. And I, went, I wanted to go see him, and I was in Atlanta with uh, uh, my first wife and a friend of mine from uh, Macon. We ran into each other by the Coke machine. And he told me, he said, man, do you know Little Richard's playing at the Royal Peacock? And I went, no. <laughs> and uh, this was supposed to be a love escape for me and my wife. And I went back to her and said, baby, would you mind if I go see Little Richard? <laughs> and so Bobby Ellaby and I went to see Little Richard together. And lo and behold, I met Twigs Linden who was, went to high school with me, you know, and he's Little Richard's road manager, you know. Well, tell me what it was like seeing Little Richard perform live. He was just, everything about it was exciting. It wasn't a boring moment in the whole set. Uh, couldn't wait to see him the next time, you know. It was, he was fabulous, you know. And to me, he, he was the real king of rock and roll. I mean, everybody says Elvis Presley, but Elvis even copied Richard, you know? He calls himself the architect of rock and roll. Yeah, I know that. What, what does that mean to you? 
he was the first one that came out with a juking record, you know. When I thought juking it, it's hardcore rock and roll, you know. But he, to me, he was the real king. Uh, you say king and not queen? No, <laughs> yes. He is definitely a, a king. Yeah, but he has a queen side to it. <laughs> Richard, the uh, first time that I saw little Richard, my brother Phil and I were standing on the corner with uh, Jerry McComb. And uh, we looked up and Jerry says, look what's getting out of that cab. And uh, Richard stepped out of the cab in a flaming red suit. I mean, Blood red, bright as could be. I had his parasol, which was red as well. And uh, Phil and I both were too bashful to say anything. And Jerry McConnell turned around and said, Tutti Frutti. And Richard turned around and shook his behind and struck a pose and said, Good booty. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that was you know, etched in my mind for life, you know. He was just such a uh, such an entertainer. I mean, he could rock a house. Part of his appeal was his flamboyance, let's say, and he did have this sense of danger. This was he was representing sexuality, obviously effeminate uh, things that had never been on display, especially in white American entertainment at that point. So what did that mean for you and your brother to see that, you know, that thing that made your brother not want to be an insurance salesman? Well, I tell you, just the music just gets to you once it gets in your blood. Once you get that thrill of that lifestyle, you know, you, you're there. I mean, you know, uh, I still, here I am 76 years old, I'm still an active publisher, you know. The thing is, he called you, I guess Little Richard called you the Walden Boys, noting that you worked with black artists in the segregated South. So, you know, what was that dynamic like for you all? Well, you know, Phil was uh, the first white uh, person who booked black bands uh, in Georgia. I I was a student at Mercer University when Bill got his orders that he had to leave right away. So I had 12 hours training from 4 o'clock in the afternoon to 4 a.m. in the morning, and I put him on a plane for Germany for almost two years. And, see, I had only had contact with black people uh, when I had a lawnmower service when I was 16. I used to go around and cut people's grass, and I'd hire the black guys to do the push mowers. But... Uh, that was my only connection with black people up, up, up to stepping into the shoes of managing Otis Reddick. And Otis already had one hit record, you know, these songs are mine. These arms are mine. He, uh, you know, he naturally was cautious in the beginning because of me being a new person, me being so young, you know, I wasn't 19. 
But he got me to go to a recording session with him, and we spent some time together on the road. And Dan Fee and I didn't end up being best friends. I mean, he was the best friend I ever had in life. You know? This is Otis you're talking about? Otis? Otis Redding? Mm-hmm. But Richard uh, came to see Otis at the Apollo Theater. And uh, he gave, he signed Otis a $50 bill to Otis with love. And uh, Otis brought back home and asked me, man, what would you do with this? And I said, I'd frame it and put it on the wall. And he, Alan, I think I'm going to spend this damn money. <laughs> <laughs> and he went out and spent that bitch at all bill. And I could, at the time, I wasn't making enough money to be able to uh, buy it from him, you know. But, uh, but those days were something, uh, you know, we, we encountered some bad people with the racial situation, but, you know, it only fueled our desire to make it work that much more, you know. I had the first integrated business in Macon, Georgia. I had the first integrated owned company in Macon, Georgia. And, no kidding. Uh, and then how did that go over in your community at the time? Well, you know, I had a few racists that made comments I didn't like, you know. Uh, but I was pretty quick at picking people apart myself. <laughs> and uh, I, I could handle it, you know. And, uh, Otis, I mean, I saw him handle it. And it used to just drive me crazy when he'd come in and tell some of the stories I'm sure you have a million stories, and I would love to hear them all, but I want to get back to little Richard, who was a proud musician, proud of his work, knew its impact. Here he is again from the GPB documentary, The Making Sound. And, and everybody said, boy, listen to that little Richard. And, and they, they thought I was crazy. So he's a madman. The man going insane. But I was singing to the fruit of old Rudy, wop, bop, loop, bop, lop, bam, boom. I got a gal named Sue. She knows what to do. Got a gal named Daisy, she almost drive me crazy. And then wop, babaloo, babalop, bam, boom. And everybody said, oh boy, where did this man come from? Macon, Georgia. Wop, babaloo, babalop, bam, boom. <laughs> Tooty, fruity, good booty. One thing you always notice about Richard, if he was on a TV show, he's going to tell the world he was from Macon, Georgia. What is it, do you think, that makes... Macon, you know, it's got a real place in music history. What is it about that town? You had James Brown, you had Little Richard, you had Otis, you had uh, Jason Aldean is from Macon, Georgia. Uh, the singer for R.E.M. was from Macon, Georgia. We, we, we have a lot of celebrities here. So anyway, I tell you, it's the water. They drink the water. <laughs> <laughs> That's what everybody wants to say. I don't know what it is, but Macon has always been attraction to talented people, creative people, I should say. Phil had a great ear for talent. I did too. I mean, we, we both knew when somebody could sing. You know, a lot of people hear somebody calling me up, oh man, I heard this singer the other night. So you got to come see him. He sounds just like so and so when I go. I don't look for singers that sound like someone. <laughs> I look for someone that's original and got their own style. Well, Little Richard was your friend, but you never represented him directly. He had other management. 
But what an original. Uh, his own style, certainly, and there was no other like him. So I wonder what, in your mind, is the key thing to remember about him and what he did for American music. Well, he established a whole new style of rock and roll. I mean, he put life into rock and roll. He was uh, getting away with uh, getting his songs played where uh, prior to those, uh, they would probably would have been censored. This man knew how to rock and roll better than anybody out there as far as I knew at that time, you know. Alan Walden, what a pleasure hearing your stories. And uh, thank you so much for, for the rich memories you brought to us today. Thank you. Let me close it with this. Rock on 2020. Alan Walden, a manager, publisher, promoter with a storied career. His brother, Phil, was co-founder of Capricorn Records, remembering Little Richard, a music legend who leaves a hole far bigger than his earthly status from right here in Georgia. So let us know what is your favorite Little Richard song. You can join the conversation on our Facebook group, GPB Radio's On Second Thought, or reach out to us on Twitter at OST Talk. And as we head into the break, another one of Little Richard's biggest hits, Good Golly, Miss Molly. Coming up, Betty Kearse's new book attempts to trace the stories that she heard growing up, that she was a descendant of President James Madison and African slaves. One reviewer called it Roots for a New Generation. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for that conversation when On Second Thought continues. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. James Madison was the fourth president of the United States, one of the founders of our country, and author of the first drafts of the U.S. Constitution and Bill of Rights. Betty Kearse grew up being told that he was her great-great-great-great-grandfather. Always remember, you're a Madison, her mother often told her, descendant of a president and African slaves. Stories of that lineage were passed down through eight generations by family griot, or griots in the feminine form, following a West African oral history tradition that goes back thousands of years. Dr. Betty Kearse is now a retired physician and geneticist, but was still practicing when her mother handed her a box filled with family photos, letters, and documents, in effect designating her as the next griot to carry their stories forward. Dr. Kearse's book, The Other Madisons, The Lost History of a President's Black Family, follows a nearly 30-year quest covering many miles and many obstacles to confirm her lineage. I spoke with her about the book for the Atlanta History Center's virtual author talk series and asked her about getting that box from her mother, who had a kind of reverence for the Madison family. Betty was more ambivalent and wanted to challenge some of the more difficult parts of the family history. Um... I'm a product of the 60s, so I sort of came of age, or reached woman, let me put it that way, um, during the civil rights movement, the Black Power movement, and very importantly, the the women's um, movement. And so I 
felt licensed to sort of take on some of the more uncomfortable sides and really not try to hide them, you know, try to talk about them head on, which was very different from the way my mother looked at it. She was very um, proud of being a descendant of President Madison, and I think in some way reassured, in some way comforted by having something special in her family background that you know set her apart from those who were experiencing the really difficult parts of being black in America. Right. And she but I came along ready to, you know, punch it in the face. <laughs> she grew up, however, during Jim Crow. Very strict mother. Yes. But this in I wanna uh, you were alluding to hitting these things head on. And this all does begin with Mandy, this woman kidnapped from Africa as a teenager, purchased by James Madison Sr. He sexually assaulted her. She bore his child, Corrine was her name. And James Jr., the man who became president, raped Corrine, who bore his child. So this is not only rape, but there's incest in there too. And and your mother, Ruby, was really rude to call it rape and courageous of you to have that conversation with her head on about what that means. Can, Can you talk a little bit about that conversation with her? Well, I, re- I remember this uh, pretty well. Unfortunately, I was uh, sitting on the floor of my bedroom with a bunch of papers around me when I happened to decide to call her because I was thinking, did she, I mean, did she really recognize what this was? So I called her up and I said, you know that President Madison and his father's rapist? And she said, Really? And I said, yes, you know, that that's what they were. And so she was quite uncomfortable with that term. And um, her term that, that she preferred was visiting. Hmm. I'm interested in that dynamic because I think this is such a part of what you confronted. It wasn't just not being able to find historical records, but it was your own family, the history that they had carried with them. And in a way you were, you were batting at a sacred cow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was the first to um, take up the bat, Um, you know, not just my mother, but my, my grandfather who actually passed down the stories to her always used the term visiting and never explained to her what it meant. And when my mother would go to someone else, like his sister, my aunt Laura, they were very uncomfortable um, with, you know, talking about what had actually happened in a straightforward way. And, you know, just refused to talk about it. They're angry if um, approached with, you know, with those kinds of questions. Well, so you, however, were going to get at the unvarnished truth about the parts of the saga that had, I guess, gone unchallenged. Um, The official history, of course, is that James Madison did not have any children with his wife, the famous hostess Dolly Madison. She was a widow and had a son when they married. But the story your family told for generations details parts of their life and the life of James and Corrine's son, Jim, 
who was sold off as a teenager at Dolly's urging. Can you, um, you know, give us a little recap? Of course, it's complicated and it's a life we're talking about, but a sense of what you heard about his life. Well, um, Jim was Madison and Corrine's son. And um, about the time he was born, one of Dolly's nieces came to live uh, with them at uh, Montpelier. And uh, Dolly assigned Corrine to be his wet nurse. And so um, the story goes that she put Jim, Corrine put Jim on one breast and the baby whose name was Victoria on the other breast and nursed him together. And over the years, they became very good friends. And when they were in their teens, they fell in love with each other. And Dolly found, found out about it and she promptly sold Jim and Jim ended up in Tennessee and he never saw his mother or his father or Victoria again. So, but you decided you're going to try and find out, you were going to try and find these unnamed, unrecorded, what happened to Jim. And in 1992, you made your first of many, many trips to Montpelier. This is the Madison family plantation. It's now an historic site. Traveled to Portugal, to Africa, to several states. And like so many people who are descended from slaves, whose lives weren't considered um, important enough, let's say, to document, a lot of trails went cold, but there were some real breakthrough moments for you. Do you Would you care to share any of those? Well, it was certainly difficult because um, often names were not recorded. I tried, but it was very difficult to find out who had purchased him, uh, where exactly he had gone. And the trail sort of picks up with his son, Emmanuel. So there is documentation of him. Doesn't have his name, but we know who he was because of who owned him. My cousin, Sean Harley, came across the, an 1830 census. The man he found was not a slave. His name was Shadrach Madison. And for a number of reasons, we believe that Shadrach actually could have, have been Jim. So now that's, that's what I'm trying to do is to somehow, you know, verify that Shadrach was, was our Jim. What are your thoughts regarding those who are trying to rewrite the narrative around slavery, the attempts to portray slavery as indentured servitude or exclude from the school history book entirely? They're deniers. You know, they're, I guess in some ways, not unlike my aunt, Laura, who, you know, didn't want to talk about the painful parts. I mean, this is a painful part of American history. You know, it happened. It's a very important part because this country wouldn't have been what it is without the millions of slaves who, who did the work to make it what it is. Yeah, that's, it comes across so clearly in your book that the role of dependency on slavery, not just as an institution, but almost as a, uh, uh, you know, an emotional support that, uh, and userous support in other ways. And you, you went to Portugal, you researched the origins of the slave trade and the twisted 
moral code that was adopted to rationalize the business, which was very profitable, to Lagos, Nigeria, then to Ghana. Why take on these physical and emotional experiences? What, what did they add to your sense of the family story? For me, they helped me to understand who I am. I grew up in a very solid, middle-class, very protected environment. So I didn't have any idea of what my enslaved ancestors had gone through. And I just felt like I was missing part of myself. So I, I went look for them. I looked for Mandy and all the places that you name. I looked for Kareen at um, Montpelier. And I literally walked in her footsteps, which was just, just a profound experience. And in so doing, I got an inkling, just an inkling of what my ancestors had gone through and how they helped through their experiences, how they helped shape me. And I learned a lot about their incredible strengths, their inner strengths, their sense of balance, their sense of hope. Um, and of course, the talents and values you know that, that they have that they pass down to all of their descendants. And this is true for every slave family, not just mine. Dr. Betty Kearse, author of The Other Madisons, The Lost History of a President's Black Family. Our conversation was recorded for the Atlanta History Center's virtual author talk series and for C-SPAN. There's a link to watch a video of the full talk at gpbnews.org. And coming up on Thursday, May 21st, I'm gonna talk with author Stephanie Danler about her new memoir, Stray. There's a full schedule and Zoom links at atlantahistorycenter.com or gpb.org community. Until we meet next time, thank you from producer Priya Mahadevan, supervising producer Amelia Brock, engineers Jesse Neiswanger and Jake Troyer. Our intern is Chase McGee. Executive producer is Mary Lynn Ryan. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for spending some time with On Second Thought. Mm -hmm.